Hi, Loretta. Good to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so for everybody who, who doesn't know what you do, uh, could you please tell us a bit about yourself? Um, well, I have written a lot of personal development books about the mammal brain and the brain chemicals we've inherited from earlier mammals and how to manage them. And in that context, I founded the Inner Mammal Institute. And before that, I was a college professor for 25 years in management. <laughs> awesome. So um, before we talk about your books and your new book, Tame Your Anxiety, um, could you please tell our listeners like a bit of your background, like how you grew up, uh, speak a little bit about your childhood and, and, and stuff like that. Okay. <laughs> um, well, um, I had a, a difficult childhood. Probably every kid thinks they're difficult. And I'm not really a fan of the victim Olympics of trying to Uh, make everyone's childhood worse than everyone else's. Um, so I'll just explain my individual variation. Uh, and my work is really surrounded by how our brains are wired from early experience. So it was very interesting for me to come and understand how these experiences made me who I was. My mother was um, very a very distressed person. Uh, due to a very bad life that she had. But by the time I came along, our lives were okay. I mean, you know, we were not rich, but we were richer than humans were all through human history. We had running water, we had electricity, you know. So my mother screamed a lot and she would burst into my room screaming. She hit me sometimes and I was terrified of her. And even me, my brain, you know, your brain learns from threat. So I'm always anticipating the threat. And our house was very small, so I could hear her screaming all the time. And so I had to learn to block it out. So I focused on reading and different children will cope in different ways. And whatever works for each individual child It builds a huge pathway in your brain that tells you this is the way to go. This is the way to survive. And you must do that to survive. So fortunately for me, reading is a, a relatively useful coping skill. Um, and especially the ability to read while someone is screaming on the other side of a very thin wall. <laughs> and, and not letting my brain always go to is this person happy with me or not because she was always unhappy with me so I guess I had to build some self-concept independent of others so you could say that made me good at being independent but it made me very bad at being connected and I, I think it's fascinating that um Because you give like your advice in all your books is like from personal experience and it not just theory because I think a lot of people who are giving advice on happiness and how to be more fulfilled, how to live a greater uh, or a happier life. They really talk just about like the theory of things, but you come from a very practical experience, right? Yeah. You know, in academia, people never acknowledge that they have feelings. <laughs> And I spent most of my adult life in that world where it's just totally taboo. And they pretend that it's 100% studies. And I think the average reader 
when you read these studies and you try to put them together, not they don't fit. Yeah. They don't fit. And so I was I was a trained in social science and teaching and still trying to figure myself out. And what it was was understanding that the mammal brain does not process language. So the part of your brain that processes language, the human cortex, I call it your internal public relations agency. It's always trying to make you look good, <laughs> um, but it doesn't really care if it's the truth or not. Um, so looking good has a short run value, but it doesn't bring you peace. Yeah, and I, I also think that a lot of readers uh to your story because I think um, if you are just live or always had a perfect life, most readers couldn't really relate to that. And I think um, they can they can really relate to 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 your work. And I think this this is also one thing be why you're so popular. And um, maybe you could also speak a little bit about like how did your twenties and thirties look like and how you got into the book writing and and stuff like that. Sure, sure. Uh, I just want to mention one thing on the last um, point. Um, most people cannot talk about their early experience the way I do because their relatives would give them a hard time. <laughs> so I'm fortunate that I have fewer relatives. So and the relatives I have won't read my books. So there. So they, <laughs> they get what they deserve. So <laughs> um, so it's taboo in today's world to acknowledge what really went on in your home. Instead, you have to blame society, you blame economic circumstances, and that disconnects you from where the real source of the feeling is. And the point again is not to be mad at your parents, because and it's not necessarily your parents, but whatever caused you pain when you were young, It's just a neural pathway. And the easier it is to see that that's like a super highway in your brain, then it's easy to see your power to just take a different road. So my 20s and 30s. So um, uh, I'll, I, I should just tell you two funny stories, okay? So um, <laughs> when uh, I got like the dream job and I was miserable, so I think a lot of people can relate to that. So I was in a training program on Wall Street. And my first day at work, we sat at the table and they asked us to introduce ourselves and say, how did you find out about this job? And um, the first person said, certain ad. And the second person repeated it. And all the way around the circle, And then I happened to be last because of which direction they went. And I said that my recruiter called me. And so I thought it was strange that I was the only person. And then ever, I asked people later and they said that they were afraid to say the truth because it may look unprofessional, blah, blah, blah. So every single person around the table went along with the lie that the first person said. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So so that was one thing. And then I remember one day at lunchtime, you know, and I was miserable and I was going for a walk and I was there were shop windows and they were selling suits that were, you know, the thing then. And there was a sign that said 
um, something about uh, having these nice clothes and career success. And I was surprised by that because my definition of success was that you didn't have to worry what people thought of your clothes. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, so I, I was so alienated. And so once again, it took me many, many, and then, and then I got another dream job as a college professor. And once again, I was miserable. So it really helped me understand over time, I, you know, first I suffered for like 20 years um, that people are mammals. They want to be with the herd. They fear separation from the herd. But then when you're with the herd, it's unpleasant. So mammals have, <laughs> mammals have lots of conflict in their herds. And yet when they leave the herd, they feel like they're about to be eaten by a predator. So it's a terrible choice, and every mammal alive is making that same terrible choice every moment. Do I take this my next step? Do I step toward the herd, or do I step toward greener pasture, which may be full of predators, and maybe the, there's a drought, so you don't know. So I, when I'm frustrated, I tell myself, Every gazelle can make this decision, so I can make it too. <laughs> so um, I think for our listeners, it would be like very, very interesting to hear, like, how did you personally manage um, your internal state times and when you were miserable in your uh, last jobs or in your career? Like, um, yeah, I think everyone would love to hear this. Sure. So I had kids when I had a baby when I was 30 and 35, and I really like kids. So on the one hand, I enjoy them. On the other hand, it is very stressful, and I understand all of the stresses in career and job and relationship and everything. And so, I mean, I was stressed like everybody else, but I really wanted to set a good example for my kids because I didn't like the example that was set for me. So I was very committed to, I will not let my, my kids see me lose control. So I learned ways of, of um, I, I was always, I think, determined to focus on the positive because when, <clears throat> excuse me, when my mother was very upset, I couldn't figure out like what's 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 wrong. What's and I realized she was making a big deal out of nothing. So I was determined not to make a big deal out of nothing. Now today's psychology, I think, is not really strong in that. They're always teaching people to go into their feelings, and everybody's supposed to validate your feelings, and the whole world is supposed to applaud you for your feelings. <laughs> and has that made people happy? I don't think so. You know. <laughs> So I have to say that, you know, I held it together without any terribly, terribly bad habits, but I, I wasn't like calm and peaceful the way, you know, the way they're selling, you know, everybody today is selling this idealized view that you're just supposed to be flowing those happy chemicals effortlessly all the time. So... <laughs> It was when my kids left home and I had free time so I could get into that if you want. But that's when I started. Yeah, sure, sure. sure. Yeah. Please. Okay. So um, 
when I turned 50, a couple of things happened. I got a letter for my retirement benefits. And I never thought of retiring at 50. And then the idea sort of wormed in my head. And I had a new husband and he agreed. And I didn't really know what I would do. Um, and my my retirement package at age 50 was 20% of my salary. So just to be real. And um, uh, the other thing was, doc I heard Dr. Phil say that we all have these coping mechanisms that maybe drain us. And when you're young, you have the energy to deal with that. But once you start turning 50, you don't have the energy to waste on those coping mechanisms. So my coping mechanism actually that I learned was physical tension. Like I was physically tensing my muscles and especially my breathing muscles. So I had shallow breathing and clenched diaphragm. And so that was the thing that I was trying to work on. And it's very hard to retrain your breathing muscles and to relax tension. Now, everyone has tension, but it's like different kinds. And the example I like to give is like chimpanzees sleep in tree branches at night. And I think, how how do you sleep in a tree branch? Yeah. And then I think you can actually hold tension in your sleep. So, so that's the way I see it. Um, so that's when I started looking into all possible explanations of our deeper mechanism. And that one thing led to another. <laughs> oh, before we, before we your book, could you please like, what would you tell our listeners who are currently listening to, to this episode, who, who maybe are unhappy in their current job, unhappy in their current career, unhappy in their marriage? Like, what would you tell them? Like, what would be your best advice to them who also are going through those tough times where, where they're currently like unhappy in their, in their job or career or life? Sure. So our brain evolved to compare ourselves to others. So... I can't really tell you not to compare yourself to others because you will, because your brain goes there. So right. the idea is to know that it's your inner mammal making that comparison and you're having this idealized view that everybody else is having this perfect life and you're somehow missing out. And when you know that your brain has created not only that idealized view and the missing out, but the threat chemicals released when you believe that you're missing out. And as soon as you know that your happy chemicals are not designed to be on all the time, your happy chemicals were wired by your early experience. And that's why we all repeat ourselves. We all struggle to, because we all repeat behaviors more than we should and refuse new behaviors because we've connected them to threat. So everyone struggles with this. So stop keeping score and just focus on understanding your own neural network and finding your power to build new circuits one at a time, little new pathways in your brain that allow you to be positive about some little moment in your day and one more little moment in your day. 
<laughs> I, I think it's amazing that you say um, we shouldn't compare ourselves because we, 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 we would just do it anyways. So because it really goes against the grain because like everybody tells us, don't compare yourself and everyone tries it, but everyone fails in it. So could you please speak to that? Because I think it, this is amazing. So <laughs> Sure. Yeah. So um, in all of my books, I talk about the happy brain chemicals, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin and endorphin. And your question relates to the hardest one. So we're starting with the hardest one. I usually start with the easier ones. <laughs> so this is serotonin. Now, everyone has heard of serotonin today because it's involved with antidepressants. And antidepressants were discovered by accident. There was never a theory that this should work. But in fact, they started out as high blood pressure drugs. And it was discovered that they also... Um, reduce depression in some people. So um, in the animal world, um, serotonin is released when an animal finds itself in the one-up position. So animals don't have this um, abstract sociological conception of social hierarchy. They build social hierarchy by fighting with all the other animals and knowing when they win and when they lose. When they lose, they get bitten. Pain builds a neural pathway that says, whoa, don't go near that guy because you'll get bitten. And when you win, that builds a neural pathway that says, wow, I got it going on, that feels good. And this has urgent survival value in the animal world because if you grasp for food, if you grasp for a mating opportunity, then your genes will survive. If you withdraw and don't assert, then your genes will not survive. So our genes are obviously inherited from individuals who survived. So we're all descended from survivors and we've all inherited a brain that looks for a one-up position And you don't get that one-up position from society because we all know people who you may think are in a one-up position, but they're constantly feeling threatened and one down. So it's just a, a thought habit of focusing on, we're basically always taking inventory every moment against whoever you happen to be interacting with and how they are stronger than you and how they are weaker than you. And then you react to that in ways that you learned when you were a child. <laughs> awesome. Could you also please explain the other four chemicals? Because I think it's like really, really interesting. So thanks. So the big one is dopamine. And dopamine is just the good feeling that you're about to get a reward. So a reward means, in the state of nature, it means food because you didn't have a refrigerator and you had to look for food constantly. And then as soon as you got the food, the dopamine stopped. Now, when I said it's dopamine is the expectation of a reward, it's the anticipation of reward. So if a monkey sees food in the distance and it walks toward it, every step closer stimulates more dopamine. And then when you get the food, The dopamine stops. So there's no such thing as just having dopamine flowing all the time for no reason. 
unless you are constantly in your mind having positive expectations about your ability to take steps toward meeting your needs. So if you're sitting on the couch saying, what's wrong? The world isn't beating a path to my door. Then you may have low dopamine and then you can get some doctor to tell you that it's not your fault that you have a low dopamine condition, but that is not doing you any good at all. Um, now, um, okay. Well, I forgot something else about that, but we'll get to it. So, um, so the next one, oxytocin. So um, some people have not heard of doc. Of, uh, oh, I remember I was going to say dopamine in the modern world when your belly is full so we're not as food oriented as animals. So we have to go into the mating opportunity part of it. So um, uh, in the animal world, it's amazing that animals are totally picky about who they mate with. And they're actually competitive and they want a better mate. And it's mind blowing when I discover this. And when I read about it in one species and then you read about it in another species and another and another. And um, it's like, oh, this explains everything. Now, a hundred years ago, when, no, more like almost 200 years ago, when Charles Darwin was sailing around the world, learning about animals, no one would let Charles Darwin get near his daughter unless he had a job that could support children because there was no birth control. So if you had sex without having a means to support yourself, your kids would starve and they would scream and it was a bad deal. And basically your parents would get stuck with the kid. So people made very careful decisions about who they had sex with. And that made sense. Today, that has been lost, and people are getting sex too easily, and yet obsessed with getting a higher status partner. So we have, like, it's sort of like getting food too easily. Like, monkeys had to work for their food, and so they didn't overeat because it was so much work to get the food. So it's like the same thing. You don't have to work as hard for your mating opportunity. And yet you're bringing all those millions of years of neurosis about <laughs> wanting. It's like when your other needs are met too easily, the only thing left that turns you on is status. And so people obsess over status and then they don't want to acknowledge that they're doing it. So they think the world is imposing it on them. And that's the subject of my book, I Mammal. And if you think the world is imposing status on you and you think that you would be happy every minute if you were given the status that you were rightfully due. And yet, if you read the tabloids, you see that people with status are not happy, which is why everyone reads the, the tabloids, because they love hearing that people with status are not happy. So as soon as you know, as you read that this is what animals are doing, you're like, oh, so this is what my mammalian operating system is doing. So um, let's go to oxytocin. 
So oxytocin is not known by some people, but other people are in the oxytocin fan club because it's called the love hormone. So oxytocin is stimulated by touch and trust. And they go together in the state of nature because in the animal world, if you let someone get close enough to touch you, they could kill you in a split second. So you only let someone close enough to touch you if you trust them. So that could mean that um, animals are always seeking a herd because it protects them from predators, but only the herd that already knows you will let you in. So if a predator comes and you run to the wrong herd, they're not gonna let you in. So you wanna go to your own herd and today we have idealized views of the herd, like it's all for one and one for all. But in reality, that mammal is pushing its way to the center of the herd to save its own life and let someone else on the outside get eaten by predators. And when you think about people in your own herd, you can see that, but no one wants to see it in themselves. <laughs> so... We evolved to make careful decisions about who to trust. And animals with a small brain make very simplistic decisions about trust, whereas animals with a bigger brain, like monkeys, they are constantly negotiating trust and updating their decisions, which means constantly building social alliances with new individuals by grooming them which you may know like grooming monkeys, what mm -hmm. they do with their hair, but you know how people are grooming each other. But then there's the negative side of constantly updating your decisions about who you trust is that if you expect someone to uh, support you and they don't, your mammal brain sees that as a survival threat and that triggers your cortisol. And now you see that person as a threat to your survival so over time, everyone who has disappointed you, you may see them all as enemies, but in reality, they disappointed your expectations, but you have created the expectations. So what if your expectations were unrealistic? Then you're burdening yourself with all these enemies. <laughs> I mean, so that's oxytocin. <sighs> Um, so we did serotonin. So now I'll just quickly do endorphin. So endorphin is basically the same chemical as opioid, morphine, heroin, codeine, and animals release this when they're physically injured and it creates a euphoria that masks pain, which tells an, um, which enables an animal to run when it's injured and thus to save its life but it only gets that good feeling for about 15 minutes because in time we need to feel our injuries so we can act to protect them. So in 15 minutes, an animal out of, away from the predator, out of danger, or it dies in a haze of morphine. And we are not designed to stimulate our endorphin in order to feel good. It's only there for emergencies. So anyone who gets the idea of inflicting pain on themselves to enjoy the morphine 
it has a very bad long run outcome because your brain habituates to all these chemicals and it takes more and more experience to stimulate them. And so I'm always very careful of telling people that I am not advocating chasing endorphin. However, since people want to chase it anyway, I add that laughter stimulates endorphin. <laughs> and so that's a good way to enjoy it. <laughs> but only stimulates a little. It's not like the big high. Got it. So, um, by the way, you're a great storyteller. I have no clue about this whole topic and you explain it so everyone can understand it. I think it's great and very, very interesting. So, um, <laughs> um, so basically we have dopamine, oxytocin and endorphins and what else or is it it? Those are the four happy chemicals. Okay. And um, anybody that writes and asks me what about another chemical, you know, I can tell you about But um, those are the four basic ones. Oh. And then I talk about the unhappy chemical, which is cortisol. And again, people write and ask me, what about this other chemical and that other chemical? But cortisol is your brain signal that you're in immediate distress. And it also prepares your body to act, to save yourself. And that's why we get this full body feeling. Like even if you think, somebody is saying something bad about you and you get this full body feeling because it evolved to um to prepare you for action got it so um let's switch gears a little bit so could you please tell everybody like what's your new book about uh, tame your anxiety and, and give us like an overview of the book Thanks. Uh, so first, I should mention that my introductory book is called Habits of a Happy Brain, Retrain Your Brain to Boost Your Serotonin, Dopamine, Oxytocin, and Endorphin Levels. And I have a bunch of self-published books. And now my new commercial book is Tame Your Anxiety, Rewiring Your Brain for Happiness. So it's about rewiring your brain for happiness. And it's about why cortisol is natural, why anxiety is natural, and why we have to learn to tame our inner mammal and learn obviously first to recognize it and be aware of it. And then I give you what I call a three-step taming tool that you could do in 22 minutes and that you can practice when you're having a good day so that it comes more easily to you on a bad day. And the three-step taming tool, it takes 22 minutes. So first for one minute, focus on what do I want in this moment? Because you, because your inner mammal wants to survive. It wants to stimulate dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, because that's your brain's signal that you, you're meeting your survival needs. And anxiety is you're telling yourself, I'm not going to be able to meet my survival needs. So as soon as you tell yourself, I'm listening to my own survival needs and I'm acting on them, it's okay then. You know, <laughs> when you build a circuit that tells you this. So you have to do it in one minute with a timer because otherwise you're going to just endlessly go into that loop of I can't meet my survival needs. So in one minute, you can deal with like being honest about what you really want and stating what you want in terms of something you can get and something you can step toward, and something that would stimulate your dopamine, serotonin, or oxytocin. Step two, for 20 minutes, do something 
that feels good because cortisol makes the whole world look bad and your body will metabolize and excrete the cortisol. It has a half-life of 20 minutes. While cortisol is in your body, it makes everything look bad. So every solution to your problems looks bad. But every 20 minutes, you get rid of half of it. So for 20 minutes, you got rid of 50%. And then in another 20 minutes, you're down to 75%. And, um, so everything looks bad while the cortisol is in you. Um, and that triggers more cortisol. So then things look worse. So that triggers more cortisol and you get into a loop. So for 20 to 40 minutes, you want to do something that completely absorbs you so that you don't trigger more cortisol. And what could that be? Well, it's complicated because someone may tell you to take a walk in the park, but then while you're walking in the park, your brain is all getting angry at what everybody said to you. Or you're doing yoga, but you're getting all upset about that your yoga isn't good enough as someone else. So it's important to do something that keeps your mind busy so you don't stimulate more cortisol, but also it's good to keep your body busy because that helps you metabolize it more quickly. But you want to set a timer and do it for about 20 to 40 minutes because if you do it for more than an hour, then that's the procrastination problem because you're avoiding taking action. So step three is taking action and you're setting a timer for 60 seconds and you're going to take action in 60 seconds. So you may think this is impossible, but you know that if you don't take action now, you're probably not going to take action and you're going to procrastinate. So the challenge here is to chunk down to a step that's small enough that you can take today that you don't blame other people and pass the buck and I'm waiting for so-and-so to call me or I'm looking, you know, coaches always tell you, look for your support team, but <laughs> that gives you this illusion that you can't do anything until the world is cheering you. And what I always explain is that my hobby is reading biographies and because of my husband is a scientist. So, we, when we go on long drives and we listen to audiobooks, and there's not a lot of books we can agree on, and biographies of scientists we both love. <laughs> and so we have, I've learned like almost all of these scientists have had miserable lives and were not really recognized until after they died. And even if they were recognized while they were alive, they had a lot of um, backstabbing from their own people. And so you don't need the world to cheer you at every step. You just need to take a step in order to stimulate good feelings. <laughs> Loretta, um, I think your advice is amazing. So <laughs> um, <Thank you. laughs> one thing I've read in your work is um, asking someone to help control your brain is like asking another rider to control your horse. So <laughs> could you please ex explain this? Yes, I think this yes, is yes. a great quote. So um, when I, um, I have to it, confess that the title, Tame Your Anxiety, was uh, invented by the editor of the book. 
So then I had to sit down and think, well, what does tame mean from an animal perspective? And so many negative connotations of tame come to mind because domestic, like a lion tamer with a lion is sort of beating the animal and a horse is tamed by its rider. And many people have studied ancient um, Hindu and Buddhist tradition where one speaks of a rider on an elephant. And there's a lot of conflict because the rider thinks that the elephant is going out of control, but then the elephant feels oppressed by the rider. And this kind of conflict between our two brains are the rider is the cortex and the elephant or the horse is the mammal brain. This is really a perfect metaphor for the conflict between your two brains. So um, I forgot what the question was now. <laughs> What was your question? I, I, um, asking, uh, asking someone to help control your brain is like asking another rider to control your horse. Just the explanation okay. for the quote, yeah. Yeah, so a lot <laughs> okay. of people, we're all told to get help. Yeah. And um, making good use of help is to build the skill of your rider and your animal Uh, communicating, getting along with each other, and working together. Oh. Rather than thinking your inner monkey is the bad guy and you're going to control it, which is the metaphor that a lot of people use, and I don't think it's helpful. <laughs> Got it. So um, you believe in designing a program based on individual needs and you want from the dangers of seeking relief from drugs, alcohol and sex and stuff like that. Um, could you please explain this? Because I think it's really interesting. Okay. Um, I never specifically warn people against those things. Okay. Um, I simply focus on we can feel good in sustainable ways. Ah, If it. you try to feel good in an unsustainable way, then the human part of your brain can anticipate the future. And you know that this is going to have bad consequences in the long run. And that stimulates your cortisol. You're like, oh my God, what's going to happen to me if I keep doing this? And that triggers your cortisol. And what do you do when your cortisol is triggered? If you don't know any healthy ways to feel good, then you just do more of whatever it is. And so we all have that whatever it is. And we go back to that. It's often called a coping skill. So I'll just tell you. So when I was young, my coping skill was I scratched my head. And that was part of this whole body tension. And I would just scratch my head and scratch and scratch and scratch. And I really couldn't control it. So I do understand and sympathize with people who think, you know, they can't control it. And I really had no idea why I was doing it. So I do understand and sympathize. And yet, um, so much bad advice today is blaming people's addictions on society. And that is so unhelpful. So... So that's the idea is finding your own power to build positive ways of feeling good instead of blaming the world for your bad feelings and your bad habits. Got it. And um, 
how how does one find coping mechanisms? Like I think it's a really tough question, uh, question yes. though, isn't it? So how do you find positive um, ways of feeling good? Yeah. So what I call it in the book is fill your pantry with healthy um, with healthy with healthy um, self soothing strategies. So um, fill your pantry with healthy rewards. So many people, when they want to lose weight, they're told to get rid of all the junk food in their house and to fill their pantry with healthy food. So the idea is that you, in advance, you're prepared with healthy ways of feeling good so that when something bad happens, you are prepared in advance. Okay. And the simple example is a person who smokes. So if you think all the time about not smoking, you're just reminding yourself of smoking. So the better solution is to think when I have an urge for a cigarette, that's because I want to feel good in that moment because something has made me feel bad. So what is another way of making myself feel good? And then have a whole list of ways to feel good. None of them are going to feel as ecstatic as the first cigarette or the first drink or the first whatever. So it's not about chasing ecstasy. It's about having a short positive chemical release and then having another way of having a short positive chemical release. And as long as you're confident in your own power to constantly stimulate small amounts with your next step, then you don't have to run and escape from bad feelings. It's really interesting. I never thought about this. Basically, um, one should replace their bad habits with just positive ones, right? Yes, but but there's a, that's not exactly <laughs> the way... I'm not the expert. Yeah, yet. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, when you say positive habits, the way that's being sold to people today is eating vegetables and exercising and chatting with friends. Right. And everyone is doing that and it's not working necessarily. I mean, if any great congratulations i'm happy but if it doesn't work for you then i think it's a deeper level it's people who think if i eat vegetables it will make me happy and if it doesn't work then i have to eat more vegetables and where i live in mm. california there are people obsessing over which vegetables and those vegetables have chemicals in them and those vegetables aren't pure enough And they go insane with these diet regimens and the same with exercise and the same with um, when they they say um, connection makes you happy. And then if connection doesn't make you happy, then you're with the wrong people. So they're endlessly searching for the right people. So that's why I think we all need to go deeper into our inner mammal and understand why it's so defensive and why it's always obsessing over survival, even when you have a perfectly safe life. So um, sometimes you just need distraction and everyone knows this. And 
you can have healthy distractors. And um, many people know of um, of video games is obviously like many people overdo it. But um, in the adult world, if you're not into video games, then what are your healthy distractors? Well, maybe there's not too many, you know? So if you could put more things on your list of healthy distractors and always have that list ready so that when you're in a bad mood, that you could do something fun and it's the positive expectation that I know I always have something fun to go to when my cortisol is surging. It even helps me get out of the loop just knowing that I have control over that bad feeling and knowing that I'm creating it myself so I don't have to feel like a helpless victim of a cruel world. So what is an example of a healthy distractor? And uh, this is very individual, so I'll, I'll start with a simple example and go to more complicated. So um, a lot of people, I, of course, are thinking, you know, exercise. But like I said, when you're exercising, if you're obsessing over a competitive thought, you know, men may be, you know, I have to build a certain amount of muscles. Women, you know, I, if I, I have to compete for mating opportunity, all of that is not making you happy. It's making you miserable. So when you're in a bad mood and the only thing you do is go to the gym, no wonder you're miserable. So do something you like when you're in a bad mood. So what can you like do that you like that's healthy? So for anyone who likes to go to the gym, great, good for you. But if you if it doesn't make you happy, then let's keep going. So let's say somebody who likes to play the guitar and sing. And if that makes you feel good, that's fabulous. But, you know, my husband, he plays the piano and then I hear him cursing while he's playing the piano because he's very upset with his own performance. And when you hear about his childhood, like his father would like, if he played a wrong note on the piano, his father would shout from the other room, that was a wrong note, like as if he didn't know it, you know, which yeah. is what, which is what Mozart's father did, which is crappy. Um, and so what else? So um, when I am in a bad mood, or just like, overworked and I got to stop. I, I know that I'm working too much and I got to stop. And uh, like, I guess the dopamine thing, you want to keep going, but I know that if I start another task when I'm already exhausted, it's not going to be good for me and it's not going to be good for my work. So I have like in between things that look like work, but really are good for me. So I start with, I chop onions because then I'm going to make something delicious. And so, but onions feels like work, you know, but while I'm chopping onions, I watch something fun. Mm. So I never watch the news. I never go into this whole hell in a hand world. I watch something fun and it takes some effort to find something fun. Now, I also like to watch something in a foreign language because I have to work so hard to follow it that I can't 
get distracted into worrying and work thoughts and things like that. So then after my onions are chopped, then I start cooking. And frankly, then I start tasting and tasting and tasting. And so that's a reward. And often I taste so much that I don't eat at dinner. I just give it to my husband, but I know that I've already eaten. Um, but it's fun. <laughs> so um, that's like distracts me from work. And then um, at night, um, something a person can do, instead of eating a whole box of cookies and then <laughs> regretting it, so I have this in-between strategy where I bake healthy cookies. I put them all in the freezer. Maybe I eat one and put the rest in the freezer. Maybe you want to give people cookies if that's your thing. But put the rest in the freezer. You know, maybe you could spend time giving one person one healthy cookie and wrap it artistically. So make it fun. So you're still making cookies, but they're full of healthy ingredients and you're only eating one. Um, I love, love, love your practical advice today. <laughs> It's so amazing. So um, let's uh, at the end of every conversation, I always ask like five quick personal questions. Um, but like, how would you what would be for everyone who's listening to this episode? Like, what would be with all those things we, we've kind of talked about today, but what would be your best advice for everyone who's listening to this episode on how to be um, or happier in general or achieve happiness? Like, what would be your, your last words or your best advice for everyone who's listening to this episode? Um, well, it, to put it in one word, I would say self-acceptance. So every one of us starts with a random collection of neural pathways. The, your native language is an example of a neural pathway built in youth. The pathways we build when we're young, they build up so strong, they're quote unquote myelinated, my books explain, that we use them effortlessly, which is why you speak your native language effortlessly. Well, your emotional responses are the same thing. They're the emotional responses of what your inner mammal learned of this is good for me and this is bad for me and turns on the good and bad feelings effortlessly so you don't realize that you're doing it because the pathways are so efficient. Now, we have billions of other neurons that we could build new pathways with, but they're not going to be myelinated in adulthood. So it takes challenge, it takes effort to build them And what I always explain, it's like blazing a new trail in the jungle, that blazing a new trail in the jungle is such hard work that you have to work and slash and slash just to take one step and just to take another step. And then the trail grows over. But if you slash a new trail every day, it becomes a trail. And with maturity, you could choose a trail rather than a highway that flows effortlessly. <laughs> amazing so loretta could you please tell everybody where can they work with you or where can they find you on the social webs buy your books and so on and so forth thanks so everything is at <clears throat> everything is at my website innermammalinstitute.org innermammalinstitute.org <clears throat> and it has all my books and lots of free resources including 
videos and lots of graphics and blogs and everything, every format that you'd like to read and many different languages, Spanish, German, it came out in German, um, and um, French, um, Chinese um, under a different title, and Russian, <laughs> and I Turkish, oh, Turkish, cool. yeah. Also, <laughs> I encourage everyone to, to check out Loretta's book. So um, the first question is for today, um, out of the five, um, what are the three books that had the greatest influence on your life? Okay, so um, the first one is called Chimpanzee Politics. Um, Chimpanzee Politics, Power and Sex Among Apes. And that really blew my mind. And I have to say that the author of this book has now written And now he's trying to present apes as cooperative and empathetic because that's cool today. And that gets, gets you rewards in the media. But in his first book, he told the truth. And <laughs> so um, that really blew my mind. Um, the second, it's called Caesar's Way, which is um, a biography of, maybe autobiography, of Caesar Milan, who um, is the dog whisperer. And he grew up in Mexico with working dogs. And when he moved to the United States and had his first encounter with neurotic dogs, and neurotic dogs, if people know, are like, some people can't go out because their dog will bite their couch and destroy their home. And these neurotic dogs, get so much attention and yet they're not happy. And he realized that dogs who work are happy and calm and dogs who just get fussed over and are special and loved and cuddled, they're neurotic. And I was like, oh my <laughs> God. And I was a parent, that was actually when my kids were leaving home. And I was like, oh my God. And not only were all the parents I know doing it that way, but all the college professors who teach other people how to raise their kids, their own kids were going off the rails and it made me so mad. And that's what sort of got me really motivated to go into this. Now, one more book that really goes into the truth of this, which is so rare today. It's a book title, it's hard to spell. So it's called Macachiavellian Intelligence. So it's about macaque monkeys and their Machiavellian behavior. So it's called Machiavellian Intelligence. And it's about the competitiveness of monkeys. And once I started learning that um, animals were competitive, and then like I said, I read another book about another species and another book about another, I'm like, oh my God, every species does this. <laughs> Got it. So the second out of the five question is, what are the three movies that you have enjoyed the most? Oh, well, I have to count the nature videos of David Attenborough. So three David Attenborough nature video series um, are just fabulous. The older ones are the best because, like I said, it was more accepted in those days to acknowledge the conflict in nature, which is why my um, book Habits of a Happy Brain is dedicated to David Attenborough. <laughs> so as far as movies, oh, geez. I, oh, you know what? Um, in the back of, I have a book called The Science of Positivity. And I have a whole lot of books list. Uh, uh, I have a whole lot of movies. Oh, and uh, I have 
movie, a list of movies in um, iMammal at the back. And on my website, under free stuff, I have a list of recommended movies. It's called Mammal at the Movies, and it's about movies with status conflicts and how, how they help us get real with our own status conflicts. And one of them, it's so sad, but um, Dr. Zhivago, it's so, so, so sad, um, but maybe helps us appreciate our lives. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the third question is, um, what is the most useful product or service that you have bought in recent memory? Okay, well, I have to say this microphone that I'm using right <laughs> now, um, and indirectly with that, the podcasting industry. So I'm so appreciative of all of the people who have podcasted me. And it's so cool that um, our lives can be revolutionized by something that was not anticipated. And every few years, some new thing comes along that revolutionizes our lives. And then people start bashing it. Um, as soon as something, you know, it becomes popular and then the next, like now everyone's bashing social media. Who knows? Maybe they'll start bashing podcasting in a few years. Um, <laughs> but it's amazing to know that every new technology that comes along came during a depression. So smartphones started in during, like 2008 during the collapse. That's when smartphones and the mobile revolution took over. So what other product... Um, uh, <laughs> I am um, using my French press coffee um, <laughs> I, I enjoy, and I have this thing about having coffee every other day, but I have to confess that I really look forward to it when I have it. So this is my whole <laughs> dopamine thing. So when we, when our talk is over, it's one of my coffee days, so I guess it's on my mind, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know what else I have to say? So I'm going to hold up. So... I found these shoes with like, it's, I say it's like walking on clouds. And we're so lucky these days that we get to wear comfortable clothing because in the past it was not, and I told you about muscle tension, like anybody who's wearing clothing that's causing muscle tension, like we shouldn't have unnecessary muscle tension. <laughs> so um, the, the fourth question is, um, what is the most important realization you've had in the last couple of years? And we had some guests who shared something deeply personal about like their business, their family, about health, about like time, about like anything. So just okay. anything you feel comfortable sharing with us today. Okay, so um, F, uh, when when my mother, I told you, we'll, we'll end with my mother again. Um, um, I told you that she screamed a lot and she also cried a lot. So I grew up feeling like, how can you not be sad when somebody's like crying around you all the time? And I was like 50-50, like half of me said, I'm going to go out and make myself a happy life. And the other half of me said, I have no right to go out and be happy and leave her home miserable. So I truly identify with readers and telling themselves it's not really okay to go out and make yourself a happy life. And you still carry the unhappiness of your family with you. And I struggle with that my whole life. 
and always had the guilt of leaving my mother in that unhappy place. And yet I, it's like, if you are trying to help a drowning person, you will help, you will drown yourself. And so I was like, I'll drown if I try to rescue her. I have to stop trying to rescue her. And after she died, I understood her unhappiness better. And so I was able to not blame myself for it. Because when she was young, I was always like, so, so what happened is when I had my second child, she came and visited me and she was, she seemed very depressed. And today I understand that because her grandchild was living in California and she was on the East Coast. So 3,000 miles away, 5,000 kilometers. <laughs> so um, that's part of it. But she was always depressed, you know. So one morning I wake up, you know, she's having this short visit with me and she looks all depressed and she's telling me that she was up all night with a bad dream. And the bad dream was that she forgot to put the milk in the refrigerator before she went to bed and the milk spoiled and got sour. And so I'm thinking, you know, in my busy career mother mode, like, oh my God, I'm trying to have a happy life and she's making me miserable over some delusion. And then after she died, I realized that when she was young, they had so little food and she was responsible for feeding her younger sisters. And if she left the milk out on the counter and it spoiled, that she would have two crying little sisters who would not be fed. And that whole pressure of all of human history of finding enough food to feed your children, that she had to deal with that pressure when she was only 12 years old because her parents were not especially developed. And so just understanding that helped me not go into it and just to forgive her and not, not immerse with it. And just so everyone knows that empathy means, it doesn't mean feeling the other person's feeling. It means recognizing the other person's feeling without going into it. Mm. And that's, that's, and I didn't learn that until it was too late and she was already dead and I figured this out. And so I think if she were still alive, I might've maybe been a little more understanding. Not that I yelled at her, but I just, I walled her off in a way that created body tension in myself. So the last question for today is, um, Loretta, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? What would I tell my 20-year-old self that my 20-year-old self would have listened to? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I don't know if it would have listened, but I think it, well, um, partly that it's that, that um, uh, your, your mother built her circuits from her life. You built your circuits from your life. 
We all build our circuits from the random accidents of early experience, but we have power to build new circuits. Loretta, thank you very, very much for sharing your amazing story and giving so many practical tips and advice to everyone. I think this was a great, great episode. Thank you, uh, thank you very, very much. Well, thank you for having me and for the fabulous questions. I, I really enjoyed it, um, all of the conversation. <laughs> Talk soon. Bye-bye.